are naturally outdoors peoples and getting that understanding and learning our history and our culture about all of the traditional medicine, the history of our land, our teachings, hunting, all of those areas that have been showing and proven to be effective in mental health and addictions, this has been very impactful in our First Nation community. That's Tim Omanika, Deputy Chief of the Wikwemkong First Nation on Manitoulin Island, and the new Stakeholder Coordinator here at Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. He's our guest on this episode of Mino Bamadzuan, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff. Minobamadzuan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for our podcast because it captures what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. The use of opioids and methamphetamines continues to be a major issue for First Nations communities. As we heard in our first episode of Menobamadzuin, this issue is described as the worst public health crisis in modern history. Our next guest has seen the impact of this crisis firsthand. Tim Amanika has worked to address First Nations substance use and addictions issues at the community level for years. Today, Tim serves as the deputy chief of his community and is our new stakeholder coordinator here at the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. Tim joins us today from his home community, the Wikwemkong Unceded Territory on Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario. Hi, Tim, and welcome to Minobamadzuan. Ani, good morning. Chimigwet Sherry, and I'm very pleased and humbled to be a part of the podcast and uh, looking forward to having this conversation with you on this episode. Awesome. So, Tim, talk to us about the kind of impact that you've seen from your experience uh, when it comes to opioid and methamphetamine addiction at the community level. Some of the uh, impacts that I've noticed, I will go a little bit back. So I started working with our local police force back in 2002. And at that time, I have really recognized some of the challenges we were having where we were seeing community members uh, who were reoffending, uh, a lot of reoccurrences of reoffending in our community. And it was mainly based upon substance misuse, either it be alcohol or other substances of misuse. And at that time, I was kind of looking at there has to be other ways of addressing this uh, uh, issue that we are currently facing in our First Nation community. There was really no reintegration steps happening for individuals. Um, and at that time, I, there, a position opened up in our community uh, with our social service department. Uh, it was called Addiction Service Initiative. Uh, so I took on that role, I applied for that role, and I happened to be the successful candidate. And working with these individuals who were on our social service uh, program, uh, this program was all based upon individuals who are having substance issues, which were causing a barrier to employment. Um, and the clients that I was serving, our community members, were having a lot of challenges with not only alcohol 
it was with opioids. And at that time in 2008, I had really no understanding of the impacts opioids were having in our First Nation community. Uh, so I approached my supervisor and asked if I could do a lot more education and training around opioid dependency, in which I did. Uh, I took a course through CAMH, which was uh, recognized through University of Toronto, which gave me a great understanding of opioid dependency and methamphetamine use. Um, and after that, I did a course through uh, York University around harm reduction. Because this was what I was observing in our community, all the individuals who were coming forth asking for services were having issues with opioids. And it was a totally different addiction that our members were going through, where in previous years, our community was abstinence-based community. And uh, through my um, travels and uh, knowing that other First Nation communities have been following the same same routes as uh, trying to be abstinence, uh, this opioid dependency was a very challenging area to try to overcome this dependency by having an abstinence-based uh, model in our community. If I can jump in, Tim, yep. tell me, t- I'd like to dive into that a little bit more. I know that that abstinence-based models are used in a lot of communities, and it has been a, an approach that, that we've seen in the past. What are the challenges with, with taking an abstinence-based approach in communities where it's, 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 you know, we often hear that phrase, cold turkey. You know, you have to, do, yes. you just have to quit. And, and that has been the, the approach um, in the past, especially when it comes to alcohol. Um, a lot of people were mm-hmm. successful in, in just quitting cold turkey, but it's not quite so easy, is it, with, with opioids and methamphetamines? No, it's not. Everybody is different. Everybody's body reacts differently through their wellness or healing journey. More in particular with opioids, there is more of a physical dependency through this opioid, which is impacting in the neurotransmitters and in the brain level where, you know, you are taking an opioid where it's uh, impacting the dopamine that is the pleasure system in in, in the brain where, where that naturally is produced when you're feeling pain and all that. So you do have, we do have opioid receptors, but when somebody is ingesting synthetic opioids, it is kind of recreating or making its own dopamine effect uh, a pleasurable feeling where your body can't reproduce that naturally. So it's hard for the body to regenerate the dopamine receptors and the feeling of pleasure when it's too overused. So it's differently how people are utilizing and trying to go through recovery. You look at individuals who are going through alcoholism, they have the detox facilities for them. They have the 12-step programming, the ongoing counseling supports where an individual who is having opioid dependencies or methamphetamine, it's harder for them to go through their withdrawal symptoms because it's a chemically dependent addiction that they're going through. So that's where I find it was very difficult where individuals are looking at more of an abstinence-based model uh, when trying to address opioids because this is some of the areas where that is it, it is proven to be effective to assist individuals to get over that first stage of recovery. What have you seen in your experience in your community and in your past you know working for the community um, when it comes to acceptance of you know, um, whether it's the methadone program or Suboxone, you know, the, the, the drug replacement therapy uh, programs, what have you seen in terms of acceptance of, of these approaches to help people? Um, that is another great question. Working in this area, it was very difficult to get community members to actually 
accept this form of treatment for individuals. What I found what was the biggest challenge or barrier was individuals, unfortunately, didn't have that education piece about how a harm reduction approach program would really benefit our community members who are having challenges with opioid dependency or methamphetamine use. So one of the things where I was finding was with the biggest challenges or having the acceptance was they would really look at individuals who are having challenges with opioid misuse is that they were like a, treating them like different individuals in our community, kind of shaming them in a way. Um, and unfortunately, these individuals were afraid to come forward and even speak about their dependencies because that feeling of being uh, labeled, stigmatized of uh, an individual who has put shame towards uh, a family member because what I've been recognizing and noticing years ago is uh, individuals who are having challenges with opioid misuse have burned a lot of bridges uh, with their family members. Um, you know, unfortunately, they would have to steal uh, family members or, you know, uh, or borrowing or even out of, uh, or even break and enters. You see a lot of more uh, criminal activity occurring just so individuals can not go through their withdrawal symptoms and they needed that, that opioid so they wouldn't go th through severe withdrawals. So this is why these were some of the challenges of having a program or individuals uh, really accepting this form of treatment in our community. Because again, it was just a lack of understanding or education of why what we are trying to do to address these uh, issues in our community. Right. And I know that often when we hear, when we talk about harm reduction, we talk about, you know, finding finding alternatives, uh, finding a safer way for people to to satisfy that addiction until they get to a place perhaps where they are able to start looking for healthier ways of life. One of the thing, one of the challenges that we face in communities is is also dealing with the effects of colonization. We often talk about decolonizing and, and, and taking back our governance systems, taking back our language and culture. But you've talked before about decolonizing opioid services and supports. And I'd, I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit more about that. What, what, are you, what do you mean by decolonizing opioid services and supports? One of the areas, again, uh, what I recognized uh, at the community level, again, working in this area, uh, uh, and getting a better understanding from individuals accessing this form of treatment was listening to some of their concerns. Um, you know, uh, us as frontline workers, yes, we are there for the supporting systems that we put in place and creating programming. But one of the things what I found was very effective was listening to the individuals who really required these supports and utilizing their information to recreate and adjust programming based upon what they have been requesting. So one of the things what I was listening to uh, when working in this area was how some of the um, individuals were... Um, not really too satisfied about the form of treatment that was being provided to them uh, around uh, opioid dependency supports. Because again, working in the area uh, years ago, um, unfortunately, we had to transport our members a 45-minute drive one way just to, for them to get this uh, synthetic uh, opioid for them to subside some of their uh, withdrawal symptoms. And during that time, you know, traveling, taking our members 45 minutes one way so being away from the community for almost half of the day kind of took them away from other services and supports that were required to address uh, the needs that were uh, for their rehabilitation 
And what I really recognized was these physicians, unfortunately, or this, this program that I, I was taking these individuals to, weren't getting any other supports other than getting a medication so they wouldn't have cravings or withdrawal symptoms. And I said, this isn't effective. Unfortunately, they were just focusing on the physical dependency these individuals are going through and not the mental aspect or component that really is required to address these individuals' addiction. So when I speak about decolonizing, you really got to look at incorporating all of the other areas that are addressing individuals' uh, form of recovery, where you inc include the cultural components. You try to work towards the physicians who are providing this form of treatment, getting them more understanding of, uh, of First Nation perspectives, our First Nation communities, uh, how, their, how, how, how the social justice system is in our social determinants of health are affecting our members. So getting those physicians to really understand what is happening within our communities, aside from them being the medical professional and providing this uh, medical treatment for them. So when you have these type of medical professionals working in our communities that really have that understanding, you're really going to see a better overall treatment service delivery. So when you talk about decolonizing, that's the approach I really had observed. And and and, and if it's not occurring now uh, in uh, in this type of service delivery, it's something that should be really looked into uh, because again, um, some of our members uh, who are having substance dependencies um, are uh, unfortunately um, in a different place uh, or may not had the opportunity to learn about our history, learn about our culture, learn about our teachings. Uh, you know, they're just dependent on the substances that they are currently having troubles with. But when you incorporate this uh, cultural piece to this form of treatment and having uh, the medical professionals really encouraging going towards our belief systems, uh, we would see more positive outcomes and the wellness of individuals accessing this type of treatment. So how can physicians, you know, doctors who are working with community, um, how can they support this kind of decolonized approach? So our treating physicians who are currently offering this type of service delivery, um, you know, we really encourage cultural awareness training, but unfortunately that's not going to be the only way for our treating physicians to say, okay, I did cultural awareness training. I'm good to go work at First Nations. They need to be more visible. They need to be more active, participate in other uh, cultural services that are happening in, in, in those First Nation communities. Our communities are similar, but there are different forms of uh, ceremonies, etc. But we all are all similar. So wherever these physicians are, uh, I'd really encourage them to really be openly participated and visible in our communities. Because uh, again, that would allow our members to really open up more to them and allow them to come forward and really address what they are currently going through. Probably also helps them connect with, you know, understanding the people, understanding the culture, understanding a little bit more about that intergenerational trauma that a lot of people are dealing with, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so one of the things what I have also have been observing and, and very happy to see happening is uh, one of our good friends who are, who are physicians, uh, we're very fortunate. We have three female physicians uh, that are from our community. And one of them I know is currently taking part and providing 
services for individuals who are having uh, opioid dependency amongst themselves. So, you know, having our own members or even individuals who are First Nation descendants to be a part of this form of treatment because who better way to be delivering this service delivery treatment is our First Nation representatives because they have that understanding of the impacts our communities are having on everyone. And, you know, they know through the grassroots level growing up in our communities or having families in our First Nation communities, they understand what what is happening. Uh, So one of the positive things that I've been observing and seeing and hopefully see in the future also is having more First Nation physicians delivering this form of treatment. I see and feel that our members who would be accessing this form of treatment would be able to open up more freely to our uh, our treating physicians who are First Nation representatives. I find this this would be a new direction to take, or let's say if there are current physicians working in these areas, to really encourage recruiting First Nation physicians to be a part of their treatment delivery options that are uh, servicing our First Nation communities. Absolutely. So that we can start to see more of what's needed at the community level, connecting with the people, connecting with the culture, connecting with that approach that makes sense for that community. Yes, exactly. You know, Tim, I'm, I'm curious if you've ever had any pushback from doctors, you know, when we talk about a decolonized approach and taking ownership and, and, and ensuring that services meet the needs of, at the community level, there are a lot of rules in place for that operate, you know, that, that govern doctors. But have you had any pushback? Yes. So when we first opened up this clinic, uh, opioid antagonist treatment service delivery in our First Nation community, and at that time, the treating physicians in our community weren't really supportive of us incorporating this new policy. One of the things what they were stating to us is that they have to follow the methanol maintenance policy handbook and guidelines that are supported by the Ontario College Physician Services in Ontario. Um, and what I stated to them was, we're not changing those policies. What we would like to see is if we could incorporate our policies to coincide with yours to have a better service delivery for the members accessing the service. Uh, at that time, those physicians weren't agreeable for us to uh, incorporate those policies with this treat, with their treatment option. Um, and uh, what I basically stated is they have to, they are visitors in our community. Um, us as community members working in the mental health field uh, have to really, if anything did happen within our community, let's say somebody succumbed to uh, uh, medication that has been prescribed by the treating physician and, you know, it was mishandled. The reality is those physicians that are not from our First Nation community could easily move on and go provide a treatment service delivery somewhere else. Us as First Nation individuals from our First Nation communities have to deal with this on a daily basis. And we would have to really speak about it to our members uh, who weren't really supportive of this type of treatment delivery. We would have to be here. We live here. We are from our community. We would have to deal with it on a daily basis. So... The pushback that we were having was that they weren't supportive of this type of change in policy. Um, at that time, I stated my case. I went to our leadership table, got full support from the leadership, got support from our mental health department, and the physicians still weren't agreeable to incorporate this type of policy within their delivery service. Uh, so we came to terms to ultimately uh, remove them from our community. 
we did more recruiting and hired a different physician who was willing to comply to what our community needs were. Uh, and that's how it is currently operating to date. How successful has that been for the community to to actually deliver these services in a different way that makes sense for your home community? Uh, the way it has been making a difference is really showing individuals accessing the treatment to participate more in a more culturally appropriate service delivery, such as accessing our knowledge keepers, uh, such as accessing more counseling supports, uh, utilizing our program delivery services in our community, such as our training and employment programming, um, and getting them a better opportunity to uh, gain education, go back to school or employment in our First Nation community. So those were some of the positive changes that we have seen when we made these changes of the service delivery uh, in our First Nation community. Because uh, prior to that, there wasn't really no mandate for them to do counseling sessions, to uh, take part in any programming or education. Uh, but when we made these changes, in our community that that had to be a part of the treatment delivery. Th these are the positive uh, impacts we have been seeing that the individuals accessing the services have really taken that initiative to move forward to their road to recovery and access the, the uh, other um, services that are provided in our community. Can you give an example of those just to kind of, because I'm not sure what the Western approach is and how it differs from the approach that, that, that works in, in your community. Yes. Yeah, so, some of the things what, uh, let's say a service delivery, what opioid antagonist treatment is, you know, you have to be absent for a certain amount of period of time. Counseling uh, supports are not really necessarily a part of the program. It's just based upon the, um, if the individual is requesting that. So one of the things uh, what I put in place was a counseling component had to be uh, a part of that individual's form of treatment and continuity of care where you're incorporating all of the service deliveries within the community. So you're bringing a more holistic collective approach with the individual's healing journey by changing some of the guidelines that the physicians are following, uh, where an individual only has to be abstinent for a certain amount of period of time, and then they're allowed to get a take-home dose to so they don't have to come to a clinic every day. One of the things what I was observing was a tendency for individuals to divert their medication. What I mean by diverting medication is a physician is prescribing this synthetic medication, allowing them to leave the premises and take it home. Then in turn, unfortunately, due to some of the uh, unemployment rates in our communities, money is kind of hard to come by. These individuals at times may try to sell this medication to an individual who's not on the program. So they are getting monies through that way. And what I've done to make it more safe in our community and for individuals not to uh, succumb to such a medication that is prescribed by a physician that's not supposed to go to them, I put in place a lot more uh, stipulations on how these individuals could get this medication to leave their premises, where they had to uh, access counseling components. Uh, they had to be involved in form of training or education. They have to be abstinent for uh, X amount of months prior to being even considered. Having the approval from a case manager that's working at the community level to give that approval, not only from the physician. And these 
forms had to coincide with each other or be attached to each other and give it to a pharmacist in order for them to release that medication for that individual to be proven to uh, uh, be allowed to take this medication out of the building. In saying that, uh, people who are um, on opioids independent, uh, there is hope for sure that these individuals can come off this form of treatment or get off of opioids. And this is where we look at using our cultural uh, teachings and our cultural ceremonies, our medicines. And what I found was, I said, you know your body yourself when you're addressing your needs, um, really encouraging them to access more cultural uh, knowledge keepers, go and access sweats, go to ceremonies. You know, if you're listening to one of our knowledge keepers or, or healers and they're offering some form of medication or medicine, um, why not go ahead, try it? Because, you know, when it all comes down to it, our medicines is what is basically used at a pharmaceutical level for you know, dealing with all different types of pain management. So, you know, these are our natural herbs and medicines that uh, our knowledge keepers know and know what medicines to use for headaches, for body aches, for almost through which all symptoms individuals are going through. So they, they know which medicines to use and, and offer those to those individuals. So I really encourage those individuals to go and continue and access those types of um, uh, other services in our community, aside from using um, uh, medication that is being prescribed by the physician. Right. You know, there's ways to use both both forms of treatment to address someone's needs. There isn't just one way that fits all. So, so I, I want to I dive into that a little bit more. I know here at Thunderbird, you know, we're all about grounding uh, a wellness in culture and connecting to culture, and, and, and that in- includes all of the things that you talked about. Um, how how open are people to to going down that cultural road to support their wellness in your experience? I had a difficult time really getting our uh, knowledge keepers, our conductors in our community. We are very fortunate and very rich to have a number of conductors in our community here. At the start of this type of service delivery back in 2014, one of the things what I, I did was go to reach out to our conductors and really ask them to support individuals who are accessing this form of treatment. Because again, unfortunately, there was times where that abstinence-based mindset was you had to be abstinent from any controlled substance or alcohol to attend ceremony, to attend sweats. So one of the things what I did was speaking with our elders and knowledge keepers and letting them know our individuals, our, our community members are really asking for help. All they need is just to have somebody accepting them and, and, and to support them when they are addressing their challenges they're going through. And then by doing so, what I found and seen was our conductors started really showing that acceptance and really understanding that, you know, apps, they, they weren't misusing or abusing other substances. They were on this opioid treatment, which was a form of medication that was assisting them to, uh, from withdrawals or even misusing other substances. So these knowledge keepers really started opening their doors for them. And they found that, and what I've been observing is that this form of treatment when they were attending sweats and ceremonies was really being very impactful and showing these individuals that they were becoming more grounded. They were becoming more understanding of um, the cultural teachings, uh, the history of our communities, getting that other understanding of things they never knew prior. Um, And 
our knowledge keepers and conductors really started seeing some positive changes by allowing these individuals who were misusing substances years ago to allow them to take part in their services and ceremonies. So when you look at that abstinence-based mindset, where it has changed now, where they are, um, you know, uh, looking at uh, addressing both ways and, and allowing individuals who are still looking for help but still misusing substances and allowing them to take part in these services and ceremonies. So uh, I know it's very difficult and through my travels and observing that unfortunately some conductors may still be in that same mindset where you have to be abstinent. But if you really want to look at the holistic approach and the journey towards wellness, uh, our communities really got to focus and come together and work with each other when doing so, when looking at recovery in our communities. I guess it's really all about meeting people where they're at and ensuring that they are safe, that that the, the knowledge keepers are safe, that the community is safe. And, and whatever it takes to kind of get to that place, right? It's, it's going to take some time to make these changes, hey? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Because one of the things I could really uh, speak about uh, to date is how this COVID-19 pandemic has really been affecting our First Nation communities. Um, you know, we've seen it increase like twofold. We've seen more individuals succumbing to opioid uh, overdoses. We've seen more people relapsing uh, due to COVID because of all of these restrictions that have been put in place, um, you know, limiting individuals accessing counseling supports where uh, us First Nation individuals, you know, we, we like to sit together with individuals when we're going through counseling services or sitting around a fire or doing outdoor therapy. You know, these restrictions really limited it, the, those types of uh, forms of therapy or treatment, which caused these individuals who were having uh, substance misuse uh, tendency to relapse or, you know, or fall back into using uh, or experimenting with other uh, uh, substances because, again, all the stress levels have increased due to this COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, this isn't just a First Nation issue. This is a global issue. This is this happens to everyone. It's happening to everyone, unfortunately. And, and during these times, uh, you know, um, you start to notice that uh, uh, our governments are really uh, increasing the amount of dollars to support uh, mental health and addictions because, uh, you know, years ago, I know us as advocates have really been requesting more support dollars. Uh, we, we kind of seen these impacts it was having, but due to the COVID pandemic now, now the federal government unfortunately are seeing we need to invest more money. So uh, uh, I'm glad we are getting more funding dollars to support not only First Nation communities, but uh, the general population in general. So to address these issues, because it's been here for a long time. And now this is the time where we have to really think outside the box and really come together and looking at other treatment options to really tackle this uh, uh, unfortunate, challenging times that individuals are having with opioids and methamphetamine use. Thunderbird Wellness is a new app developed by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life. Thunderbird Wellness has reliable information about opiates, methamphetamines, cannabis, and other substances. The Thunderbird Wellness app is free and can be downloaded today on the App Store and Google Play. 
as I mentioned off the top, you know, you have worked in community substance use and addictions issues for years, but you also play a leadership role in your community as the deputy chief. What role does community leadership play, do you think, in addressing substance use and addictions issues? I find this position sitting at the political table, we play a very important role. When a community or community members see leadership showing openly that they are accepting and and, uh, listening and uh, allowing for additional services, you'll see what I found, what I've seen was more individuals came out openly to access more supports because when they seen leadership is really supporting this type of service delivery, they're saying and looking us and saying, oh, wow, like our community is really accepting what, what is going on. I'm not afraid to hide anymore. I'm going to come openly and address what I'm going through because I know my leadership and my, my community is really supporting this type of service delivery. So it really opens those doors and allows your community members to come out openly and, and, and address their issues because they know they are not going to get uh, uh, penalized or let's say if an employee was having challenges with, with uh, substance misuse, they may be hiding this dependency because they're afraid to get reprimanded from work because there is no supported mechanisms in place by leadership playing this role. So one of the things we did in our community is really supporting employees who were having challenges with substance misuse where they wouldn't get fired for having this type of uh, dependency. They would get support to address their needs and to look at uh, other ways of uh, overcoming that addiction aside from them you know, continuing to use substances uh, behind closed doors because, again, you know, it it may be more impactful to our community when these individuals are not addressing their needs who are employees in our community. And when they see leadership really supporting them, they will come forward and openly addressing their needs. And by speaking about that leadership role, um, it really allows us as leaders in our community to share this information with other leadership nationally. So when we're sitting at national forums or uh, provincial forums, uh, we're able to share some of our experiences with what are happening with other First Nation communities. And, you know, if some of them are having some difficulty making some kind of decisions because, uh, again, not having an understanding of a harm reduction approach addressing opioid or methamphetamine use, we would be able to share some of our perspective on how we were addressing and how we came collectively to support our members um, who are having challenges with this type of uh, addiction. So really creating a safe space at the community level so that, that people know that, that it's okay, it's okay to, to admit that you have, have this issue, that, that, that you're struggling with this issue with addiction and, and, and ensuring you have the policies in place to support them, to accommodate them, um, to connect them with, with supports, treatment, whether it's treatment or it's, it's knowledge keepers, elders, land-based programming, all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. I, I really love the land-based uh, form of treatment also. Um, uh, I'm a very, I'm an avid hunter. Uh, I love the outdoors. What I found was very impactful was incorporating land-based programming into not only opioid or methamphetamine use, but any form of treatment dealing with mental health. Our outdoor, we are naturally, you know, live, uh, outdoors peoples and, you know, getting that understanding and learning our history and our culture about all of the traditional medicines, uh, the history of our land, our teachings, uh, hunting, all of those areas that 
have been showing and proven to be effective in individuals who are having uh, challenges with mental health and addictions. This has been very impactful in our First Nation community. Um, when I was working in the area uh, as the uh, wellness manager at this OAT treatment clinic, I did fall deer hunts annually. I did spring fishing trips. I did uh, summer uh, uh, medicine harvesting. So I used every season of the year uh, because that's how our uh, ancestrals, you know, used to do teachings with our members is using the seasons to adjust and be giving those teachings to our members. So what I did was incorporate that for individuals who were having challenges with substance misuse, more in particular opioids and methamphetamine, and really getting them out of their their um, their comfort zone, getting them out of the community, taking them out in the bush, and really bringing our natural helpers out there to give those cultural teachings and and give them that understanding of what's out there on our land aside from substance use within the community. And I've really seen this very impactful for uh, our members. And I see a lot of the individuals who access this, this type of uh, treatment by going out on the land, really seeing them uh, participating more often and requesting to come outdoors now. When are we going to do another hunt? When are we going to go do medicine harvesting? And uh, to date, uh, I see people taking their kids out now that were on a program previously when I worked with them. I see them in the community and they say they still go out hunting. So you see how impactful that was when doing this type of service delivery with them years ago. So it's kind of embedded in, in starting that, that fire. Uh, we all have that internal flame as Anishinaabek. So, you know, some of the fire kind of, uh, kind of smoldering, let's say, and then, you know, restoking that fire is just giving those individuals that sense of hope and meaning and belonging, such with Thunderbird, uh, continues to promote. When we're stoking that fire, you start to see it rebuild. You're putting another log on there. That flame starts to heat up inside them and that they really move forward to looking at other areas of their recovery and knowing the other importance other than substance misuse. So I found land-based programming has been showing and proven very effective for individuals, not only through uh, substance misuse, but mental health in general and for our communities. Absolutely. You just feel better when you're on the land, right? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Tim, thanks so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you so much, Sherry. All right. Well, thanks for that. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you like our podcast, please rate and review it. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Thunderbird PF. Anishik, and thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff. <laughs>